Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest, Stephanie Omens, is a licensed creative arts therapist and licensed professional counselor with a focus on children. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Harper. Nice to meet you. Thanks. You too. So happy to have you here. Our mutual person is Heidi Landis, another amazing creative arts therapist. And if you can just start, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. So I'm a drama therapist specifically, and I'm also a certified child life specialist, which is supporting the psychosocial needs of hospitalized children or really any child whose life interfaces with the hospital. So that could be the child themselves who's ill. And also if the child is associated or in the hospital because their sibling is ill or their parent is ill. And my role is addressing their needs, their understanding of the illness, answering questions or facilitate that, and supporting them through any procedures or anticipatory grief, as well as active phases of dying and end of life. Such powerful work. I mean, it's something that, you know, reading your bio and spending time on your website, I'm really like, wow, I wish I knew this existed when I was younger. And, you know, the support that you provide people is so valuable. What made you become a therapist and what drew you to creative arts in particular? Well, I guess that's going back a little bit. Um, I was always an actor. That was where I really found my love, just sort of digging into stories. And then later became much more interested in college in the process of making an ensemble, making a group or creating a story or narrative. And that's not very lucrative. So um, I, <laughs> I found a drama therapy, um, a form of psychotherapy that combines the creative arts therapies, specifically drama, uh, metaphor and role and story to support a client therapeutically. Going into helping children, I really wanted to, or my focus really became a way to synthesize or break down in very simple language the child's illness and the procedures and supporting them through story really is my thing to understand what they've experienced. So understand the story of the hospital or the story of the illness. I love that so much. I'm excited to dig into this further. So tell me a bit about your platform and therapeutic approach, No White Lies. What is the concept behind it? And is it an approach that you developed yourself? Yeah, No White Lies is an idea of um, what it means to lie to children. Is it myself? I mean, no, I'm the concept of lying or how secrets are told or things aren't explained to children around medical circumstances is certainly something that we know. But after working with children and families for many years, about 
you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years. What I discovered were common themes of lying to children, not telling the whole truth or telling lies by omission or these sort of fantastic stories that had very little to do with the truth, which resulted in disempowering children and confusing them. Um, mistrust. So children have less trust of their primary caregivers and the medical professionals and really extends to the whole world around them. Um, so really thinking about what this sort of means, a little white lie, this sort of play on that word and how it seems very innocent. However, it can have challenging repercussions. Uh, my website and my platform is really about putting the power and the authority of truth-telling into the parents' hands, and that that can be done, you know, empowering that parent to provide the support that their child needs specifically and to manage or maintain that at home. So I say um, put the power and the authority of truth-telling into your hands in your home for your child. What kind of repercussions do you see with children when adults are not telling the truth in situations? Well, it's interesting. I recently spoke to a woman well in her 80s who described to me a story of being a very little girl. Perhaps she was seven or eight. And she was sent off to school to return um, that her father had died. And she shares that she had no understanding of his illness and no one explained to her what it meant that he was gone. In fact, the adults around her just simply said, he's gone. She didn't know what that meant for several days or weeks after until a schoolmate said to her, your father died, or I think it was who died. And she talks about her anger and how she was very confused, um, angry at her father for not explaining it and angry at the adults around her. And that well into her 80s, she carries today. So, you know, that's one story. But a little girl I worked with recently, whose mother was in the hospital, unfortunately, with a condition that would take her life, it was a life limiting condition, and she was in the trajectory towards dying end of life. And for about three days, everybody around the child and at home had explained that mommy was getting better. And when she was told, she turned to her father and she stated, um, you lied to me. You all lied to me. And she was very angry and justified in her anger. I could tell countless stories of that. But what it results in is mistrust and confusion and that the child sort of builds life around these misconceptions. And what about with children who have illnesses themselves? And the parents, you know, educating or not educating them on the full picture of what's going on, no matter how serious it is or not. So I'd say kids who are suffering with chronic illness, their parents and children whose, you know, a loved one is dying. It's the same sort of thing that the parent themselves does not want to face the truth of the illness that the parent themselves is having a hard time accepting and coping with what this means, the chronic illness or end of life. And that in effort to protect themselves from the truth, that they sort of project that denial onto the child. So what I write about is this idea that if the child can go around with this unknowing, right, or false sense of reality, then the parent is 
sort of, and this is subconscious, of course, and with, you know, no malicious intent. Um, but then the parent can watch the child sort of go along, you know, normally with their lives. And that soothes the parent. Parents often say, you know, I don't want them to be affected. And my response is they are affected. They're part of your family and your whole family is affected by this condition. And why would you be leaving out a crucial member of your family? And if that child has the illness themselves, then why would you be leaving out the child? It disempowers them, the authority and power they have over their own bodies, over their own health and wellness, and over their own treatment. You know, it's interesting hearing you speak about it. It's like, it sounds so obvious. Like, talk to your children about these things. It's so important. It's part of their lives. But at the same time, is there anything that kids should be guarded from in your mind? Do you ever feel like it does serve them to be protected in some way? Well, my approach is developmentally normative and in language that a child can understand. So oftentimes parents fear working with me thinking that I'm going to say something horrible, like, you know, you're going to die or, you know, dad's going to die. That's not appropriate. It's not anything that is part of my work. I I work with very simple language in small little digestible bits so that the child can understand what's actually happening today, right? Um, If we're anticipating something like an end-of-life trajectory, then I will explain that. But in very thoughtful clinical language and not any time before the child needs to understand that. I don't hit the child over the head with any information. In fact, you know, quite the opposite. So when I say truth telling, I don't mean, you know, stark truths that have some sort of aggression or anger or um, harshness with them. I mean, very careful language that a child can understand. In terms of things that shouldn't be told to children or should be guarded from, depending on the child's age, uh, yes, it might not be appropriate to explain certain things. In fact, my recommendation would be it may not be appropriate to explain certain things like this condition over the course of their lifetime could limit their life expectancy if they're seven, let's say. That's just a simple example. It's very hard to be generalized. And parents often say, well, you know, people say, well, what about Santa Claus? Or what about the tooth fairy? And my work is not about destroying hope or destroying faith. I very much believe that a child should have faith and hope. In fact, that's very powerful and important towards our well-being. So ultimately, my work is about explaining things, small and developmentally normative, in the way that is clinically appropriate based upon, you know, my assessing the needs of the child and the family, but simultaneously maintaining and building hope and faith and what the child wishes for so they can feel in control and a part of the process. Sounds like it's really important. And I agree with you in having them be part of the process. And as you said, depending on their age, knowing where they're at developmentally to be able to share with them you know, in their terms that they understand. Can you give an example, whether it's a recent patient or a past patient that you've worked with, where you've had to deliver news to them that they hadn't heard in their home before, and what that language sounds like? So 
recently worked with a family where one of the parents has leukemia, a blood-related cancer, and they're going for a treatment, a stem cell transplant, and they've been living with this condition for several years, but the child who's you know school age, a young child, doesn't know anything about their parents' cancer and doesn't know anything about the treatment that they've previously been receiving. That's all been kept from them as well. Um, doesn't know about this upcoming transplant. And the family was sharing with me, like I said, you know, we don't want them to be affected. We don't want their life to change because of this. Well, the whole family's life will change because of this. And I think the complicated part was explaining about keeping the parent healthy and safe. And this confusion that the child might have, especially now with COVID-19, about the measures that the family is taking to protect themselves from COVID-19 and the extra precautions that need to be taken for the family or the, the ill parent. So what I explained was that you know, we all have an immune system and the child may or may not know what that is, but that our immune system is the part of our body that keeps us healthy and well. It's the part of our body that is working to heal the cough or the cold or the lung infection or the joint pain, the arthritis or rheumatological arthritis. It's the part of our body that's trying to heal us. And sometimes that immune system kind of gets the wrong message. Uh, it would be as if I were sending you, Harper, a text message, but accidentally it got sent to our friend Heidi Landis, that somehow the message got you know misconstrued or lost. And that when the body does that, we want to fix it. We want to help direct the body to heal the part that is you know, not working. In this case of the stem cell transplant, that parent's immune system wasn't working. So we would for the age of the child, the best thing to explain was that we were sort of weeding a garden or digging all the soil out of the garden to replace it with a new immune system. Very simple, very concrete with pictures and language so that the child understood then we're putting in or we're going to put new soil in and plant a new garden with a healthier immune system that could solve this problem that was making daddy sick. And when we do that in the very beginning, the garden, the plants, the soil is very delicate and very precious. And we need to be very careful not to step on it, you know, to water it, to tend to it. And that's what we're trying to do to help their parent. And that's what we're going to do. That's a really thoughtful way of doing it to make it tangible for the children to be able to understand and not hide anything from them, but speak in their terms. You bring up mm -hmm. a really good point around COVID, which is something I've thought about a lot when I've seen kids wearing masks over the last few months, is I'm really curious the conversations that parents are having with their kids around COVID-19 and why it's important to wear masks or explaining to really young kids, you know, who aren't wearing masks, why their parents are wearing them. Do you have any thoughts or, you know, language that you have found to be most valuable? around the mask wearing concept? Well, I made a little video about talking to children about COVID-19, little animated one minute video that explains a little bit about it. And also wrote a book on my website explaining to children or how to talk to children about a global pandemic. But specifically your question about mask wearing is that when we 
kiss or when our tongue is wet and our nose has snot and our body <laughs> has, you know, saliva and that gets into the air. That's the way that the body works. And unfortunately, this virus, this illness is inside or attaches to those little tiny particles and we want to keep them inside. So similarly, if we blew up a balloon, you can see sometimes the moisture inside the balloon, inside the latex balloon. And similarly, the mask sort of does that. It traps or holds the sneeze or the cough or the little tiny particles of moisture in our body that get expelled into the air. So it's kind of like that. We're not going to open the balloon. We're going to keep that mask on so that we can protect everyone from the virus or protect ourselves from someone who might have it and not know they do. We'll be sure to link the video and the book on your website so parents can check that out for their kids if it's valuable to them. Thanks. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about my experience as a kid living with an invisible illness and what that experience was like for me on the sort of hiding things component. As I've told you before we recorded, I hid my invisible illness because I had a lot of shame around it growing up. It didn't feel like a lie to me. I didn't feel like I was like intentionally lying, but I just chose not to talk about it for the first 27 years of my life. And I wasn't diagnosed with my condition until I was even 10, even though I was going through lots and had a lot of symptoms and was hospitalized and all these things happening to me. So I really wonder, given my experience of not sharing, mm -hmm. what do you say to your patients who feel shame around their circumstances and what does support look like for them when they're not really you know, putting themselves out there about what they're going through? Mm -hmm. It's super confusing to not have a diagnosis, to not know what's wrong and to be searching. Sometimes it's, if I were working, like, you know, let's pretend I met you when you were little. I'll just walk you through what I would have done if you were a little girl. Um, there were lots of doctor's appointments that you went to and perhaps lots of blood tests and other kinds of tests. And I would explain, you know, that Sometimes mom knows exactly what's wrong, right? You know, you scraped your knee riding on your bike and mom knows exactly what you need. You need a bandage and a kiss and then everything's fine. But sometimes there are bigger illnesses, not on the outside of your body, but on the inside. And we need to look because we can't see inside the body. And some of the ways that we look are through the blood tests or the CAT scans or sonograms or other types of pulmonary lung tests, um, things like that x-rays. And that is so the doctor can sort of search. It's like an eye spy. And the doctor is looking for what clues or what puzzle pieces can they put together to figure out what's wrong. And for a long time, what's happened is we haven't been able to figure out what's wrong. And that's kind of a bummer because it's really confusing. And the brain really likes to solve problems. And unfortunately, some problems we can't solve. Even the smartest people can't solve that problem. So we're going to sit with not knowing. We just don't know what it is. But one thing I really do know, I'm absolutely sure of, is that it's not your fault that you didn't do anything wrong and nobody did anything wrong, that sometimes things just happen and we don't have anything to point to or anybody to blame or anything to blame, which is super hard to deal with because if we had something to blame, then we could just fix that thing, right? We could just 
tell that person to stop doing this. Or if it was about eating more apples, you could just eat more apples and the problem would be solved. But it's super important to know that it's nobody's fault. So shame and blaming oneself is really a way of solving or fixing the problem. This puzzle, this, you know, this math problem was too hard to figure out. But if you could blame yourself and carry the burden of shame, then actually that's sort of a solving of the problem, you know? So, you know, that's the way I would explain it. I would walk the child through every single test so they understood that there was somebody there to support them. And this is the model of the child life profession and child life specialists throughout the hospital that accompany children to procedures and play with them and explain things to them and make sure nobody sneaks up on them or touches them without first, you know, sharing what they're going to do, how it's going to feel. It's going to feel cold. It's going to feel like a, a pressing or it's going to feel like, you know, something else. Explaining every step so that the child understands and can feel comfortable in the hospital. And then once a diagnosis is made, to explain what that is, to explain that there was something inside your body that somehow wasn't being a good listener, that somehow wasn't following instructions or sending the right messages to the right parts of your body. And we're going to try to, you know, ask it to knock it off, right? <laughs> to, to stop bothering your lungs or stop bothering your joints, stop bothering your skin, which is another organ of the body, as you know. And the way that we're going to try to do this is with these medicines, uh, because because, because, and <laughs> helping the child to understand that. And then empowering the child to say, well, you know what? There's things that maybe people will notice on the outside of your body that looks a little different. And you get to choose what you want to say. You get to decide. So let's play with, let's explore, let's think about all the things that you could possibly explain to your friend. Like you could tell them the name of the diagnosis or you could just say, oh, it's nothing. You know, just to practice the way the child wants to deal with the encounter. So I guess that's a little bit of a story I guess I might have told you when you were a little girl up until when you were 10 or 11. Yeah, and I think that's so valuable. I mean, it makes me really wish that I had someone like you. But the thing with that is that I was very clear in that I did not want to talk about this. I didn't want to mm -hmm. see a therapist. I didn't want any community around this. It just was like, let's pretend it doesn't exist. That is really the mindset that I had for so long of let's deal with the symptoms. Cool. Put the bandaid on and move on. And it was all, you know, just make it go away essentially. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to hear this perspective and the work that you do that sounds so incredibly valuable for children in coping themselves with their health and then obviously mm -hmm. with their loved ones, it's so, so valuable. What is the emotional impact on children who don't have community or support growing up? Obviously, you know, as I've shared with you previously, I have incredible parents and family and friends, but I chose not to seek help related to my health for so long, emotionally, that I mm -hmm. wonder the kind of impact that that can have on people. So that's not unusual that a child doesn't want to deal with it. And, you know, because I'm a drama therapist, and I work with play, and I make things fun, I say to the child, well, we don't have to talk about it. So let's decorate, let's find a place that we want to put all of the thoughts and the feelings that we don't want to talk about into a box or a jar. 
um, that we can close the lid on very tight and hide it someplace. So that's being a way for the child to control containing all those things that they don't want to talk about. And if they can't name them and they don't want to name them, that's okay. We can use our voice, you know, we can growl or we can, you know, yell into the jar or to the box and then just tie it up tightly and hide it away and then do the things that the child wants to do. But by working with the children, I am in partnership with them. I'm not colluding with them that there really is nothing to talk about. I'm in fact helping them find a way to frame what we're not talking about and for the child to know that I know that too, but that's okay. We're not going to talk about it. And then I guess what you're asking about is what if a kid doesn't have, you know, a Stephanie Omens, then, um, which most kids don't, right? Most kids absolutely <laughs> don't. <laughs> so that's really been my mission and my um, passion is helping parents to understand how best to communicate very difficult concepts to children. And that's really, you know, my platform and my brand with No White Lies. So that's a really hard question. I could just say that when I meet the child, if I am lucky enough to meet them or, or another specialist, somebody who specializes in talking to children about complicated illnesses, about chronic illnesses or end of life circumstances, um, and sadly, there are not a lot of us, that I would first start with what they understand, what they currently know, what has currently occurred, and frame that from the past, what's happening in the current, present, and then, you know, how do we want to proceed together in the future? I do not ever sit children down and say, you know, well, how are you feeling about this? Or what do you think? Because kids will say, I don't know, or, you know, nothing, right? But because I work with metaphor and role and play and story, I find another way, another inroad into the child's you know, coping the child's story rather, really. And um, I guess, Harper, all I can say to you is that I'm super successful and I don't mean that in a boastful way, but parents will say, oh, they don't want to talk about it or they don't want to see somebody. And, and my response is really, um, most kids want to play with me and talk to me. And I really can only think of one or two that have absolutely refused, uh, but mostly I'm pretty successful. So I don't know what that is, but that's the truth. Yeah, it's u- using the power of storytelling to be able to help these kids cope in whatever way they need coping. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. So with the parents, 
how much of your time is spent having to address them and talking to them about what work you've done with their children? Because they're basically like, here, please help my child fit through this. But I'm sure you also have to work through it with the parent. Absolutely. I first have to discuss with the parent uh, what they want. What are their goals? What are they confused about? What's missing? And then address that and share with them how I might approach it. And then ask them very clearly, you know, what are you afraid of? What are you concerned about? What don't you want me to talk about? What do you want me to talk about? If it's something big, like I don't want you to use the word cancer, then I will try to educate the parent and um, help them to understand why it's necessary to use appropriate language. And parents are very receptive once they understand. Then to have, as I said, permission for me to work with their children. And oftentimes I will include the parents. In fact, mostly I include the parents because I'm just, you know, the creative arts therapist who is working with your child maybe, you know, once, maybe a half a dozen times or once a week, right? And that the children, as you know, will um, ask more questions and bring things up at the most inopportune moments. And the parent needs to know what I said so that, you know, they can have the power to understand how to best continue that conversation. So as I said, that's why I want the parents to have the power and the authority and the appropriate language to work with their own child, right? So I hope that answered the question. It absolutely did. And I think it's such an important thing because it's not just like you're the therapist for the child to a degree, Mm -hmm. you're also a therapist for the parent. Oh, absolutely. And many parents, you know, the COVID video is funny because um, I wrote it and many parents come to me and say, I learned three things watching your video, (laughs) three things I didn't know about COVID-19. Super funny. Um, But little things like, you know, little things that can be even complicated and overwhelming for the parent to understand. And they're understanding it a little better because I speak to them. As I said, I write stories. So they're really concrete objects, like an actual book that the child holds in their hand. So the child can then read again and again, the story of their illness or their baby brother or sister who died or their parent who's sick. So the parent could read it to them or they could read it to the parent And um, for little kids who don't read, there are pictures that go along with the story. So the child can actually really read the pictures. That's super cool. I love that. Well, it reminds me of Sesame Street and how many adults watch it and sort of learn how they are making it kid friendly, Mm -hmm. but also making it comprehensible. Uh, you know, I watched the Black Lives Matter Sesame Street episode and just thought it was such an interesting approach to addressing racism and, and all that in the world that's going on. Yeah. I mean, just to go back to what you said about Sesame Street and, um, you know, I would say Mr. Rogers is that when you think about them, you know, they're really more for the adults in the room than they are for the children. So um, you're absolutely right. I'm like, I, I like I I already want to have a kid really badly, but now I really want one so that they can go to you. <laughs> oh, so well, I hope they never have. I I always say this. I hope your kid never really has to see me. Like yeah. people, like I said, people are really afraid of me. Like that that I am going to say something horrible and upset their child. And I say, you know what? The circumstance is upsetting. This diagnosis is upsetting. Not me. I'm here to try to help support them to understand it. But, you know, it's the diagnosis that's difficult, not 
supporting the diagnosis. And that gets confused. I guess one thing we didn't talk about is that I work with very young children, that people often have the misconception that kids won't remember something or you don't need to explain it to them. And I will tell you in my expertise and my experience, that's absolutely not true. Um, I'm currently writing a book about grieving children and how to um, support children through end of life and grief. And in that book, I, I have examples of very young children and how they understand the impact of loss, not verbally, um, you know, but, uh, you know, embodied and neurologically and how that is changed forever because of loss and um, disruption. In your line of work, how do you measure your success? How do you know that you've accomplished something with your patients? That's a great question. And I have a good answer for it. Is that um, once long ago, I worked with a very young child who, unfortunately, and this is a toddler, um, so two or three, who witnessed the death of their sibling. And that was extremely traumatic, of course. And I began working with that child soon after the death of their sibling and helped them to understand because I was lucky enough to work with that child over the course of, you know, a few years. As they grew older, of course, I was this familiar person that played with them and they could understand more and more in these sort of digestible bits as they aged and got more language. Um, that child I stopped working with, of course, I think when they went to school and then every now and again, they would touch base. And now this person is a young adult and this person shared with me a piece of writing, something that they wrote talking specifically about working with a therapist at the time of their sibling's death and the impact. They actually write about stories and how I helped tell the story of their sibling and how even after death, I continued to help them to keep their sibling alive in their games and in their play and in the child's story as they were growing up. And now that child themselves is interested in journalism and broadcasting and speaks about their love of stories because of their therapeutic relationship. So that's how I measure it. Um, yeah. That is so cool to have someone come back to you and be like, here's the impact it's mm -hmm. had on me and I'm sharing it with the world. I mean, really nothing more you can want. Yeah. From there, it's a kind of like mic drop. I'm out, you know, like I don't have anything more to say, um, but and great talking to yeah, you. We're done. Um, I'm out. But, you know, many parents will come back and tell me and thank me. I mean, uh, but I don't do it for that necessarily. Uh, but I absolutely know that it's impact. I can only say that when I am blessed to have that type of feedback, then that's good. But also, I absolutely know. I absolutely know in that moment because uh, there's a shift because there's a change in the family dynamic. There's a change in sort of a release in the child's understanding of what's going on and coping to, um, to manage it, whether it's the child's illness or due to grief and loss at end of life. Yeah, that makes sense. How do parents typically find you? I mean, is it through hospitals mm -hmm. that, you know, what does that look like? Just because I can't imagine you're just like shouting out, you know, anyone who's got a ill mm -hmm. or dying family member, um, you know, let me help your kids. I mean, that's obviously your message, but 
how do you find people? So in every children's hospital nationally, there is a child life department. Some child life departments are um, very large and you'll find child life the creative arts therapists in every department, you know, in the operating room, in the radiology department, in the emergency room, et cetera, ICUs. Uh, and then I would say to parents, we'll always advocate to find or ask if there's a child life specialist on staff and, you know, that person would come and support them. Regarding children whose parents are end of life or facing life-limiting circumstances, sadly, there are very few professionals working in hospitals. That's the invisible part for me. And my passion is that those children whose parents are end of life or whose siblings or baby brother or sister who, you know, is born still, that those are the invisible kids. Those children are forgotten, that there's a lot of support around the parent or the person who's dying or um, the mother or father who's sadly lost a baby but very limited support and understanding about how to help the sibling or the child. Mostly the misconception is, you know, that they don't understand or they won't understand. They're too young. They'll forget. Um, how could you possibly explain that to a child? Or, you know, like that's a cognitive problem, but then there's also the emotional problem. Of like, how could you possibly explain that to a child? So, you know, just to address like that, it upsets me that those kids don't get the support that they need. How folks find me is um, you can find me on my website, which is um, nowhitelies.com. Um, and I'm present on social media. Nurses, doctors refer to me, um, social workers, other mental health professionals, and uh, word of mouth. So I have a private practice right now because of COVID. I'm you know, exclusively on telehealth. And when that's not true in New York City. And the website actually has some stories that I've written. They're general stories about change, about cancer, about infant death and divorce, and about COVID-19, like I said. So those are easily downloadable, but you know, people can also work with me so that I can individualize the story because uh, every family is different. Every child's story is different. And really what I like to do is tell that specific child's story. So it's not one story for every child. It's one story for your child, specifically telling them their circumstances so that they can have the empowerment to understand the narrative, uh, which is what I call, you know, building emotional literacy. That's a really good point on the, you know, every child handles things differently. Every family is different and addressing it exactly that way. Stephanie, thank you for doing the kind of work that you do. As you said, and as I definitely feel, there needs to be more of you and people like you in the world to support children and their families. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Harper, for inviting me. I'm really grateful to share this with you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grissio for the design.